and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love finding out how people, and specifically performers, intentionally set their mind to be their best. So I work as a mental performance coach where I get to interact with some of the best performers in the world in a one-on-one setting, in a team setting. They're both in sport and in business. And so I fired up this podcast to try to get more insight, more wisdom into how people all over the world are setting their mind to do really cool things. So today's guest is going to be awesome. But before I get to him, I just want to tell you a little bit about how you can help us out with the podcast. So the first way is just by listening. Thank you so much for listening. The second is to share. So share this conversation on Twitter, Instagram, send an email to a friend, uh, do what you can to try to get these people's stories out to as many people as possible. But the third way is to go over to our Patreon homepage. So Patreon is a website that helps creators like me generate revenue from the work that we do. So patreon.com backslash intentional performers is a really simple way for you to help support us as we continue to try to grow this thing and build it out. And people have been really generous. So thank you to those who have already given, but you can give as little as $2 a month to as much as $10 a month and just really help us as we continue to go down this journey and try to unpack what makes intentional people be that way and what is behind their mindset when it comes to intentionally setting their mind. Now to today's guest, Kevin Chirilla. Kevin and I were connected by a mutual friend named Joey. So thanks to Joey for connecting the two of us. And Kevin wears many hats. He's a business owner. His company leads expeditions up some of the toughest mountains in the world. And they also have an element of voluntourism to that. So if you're into climbing, you're into volunteering, you're into adventure, uh, his company is definitely worth checking out. And then they also have a foundation that helps people with disabilities uh, get equipment, uh, get, give them services to help them out. So he'll talk about how disability has impacted him in his life. So Kevin is somebody who has an amazing foundation and an amazing company, but his story is also really interesting and intriguing. So he's going to share what it was like to grow up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's going to share his experience as a college basketball player and also running track. And then, I mean, one of the crazy things about Kevin is he climbed Mount Everest. So he's going to talk with us about what it was like and what that experience was like and the mindset necessary, not just to climb it, but how you prepare for doing something like that. And honestly, the brutal conditions that you face when you climb Mount Everest. So he's gotten all kinds of recognitions. His teams that have climbed all kinds of mountains all over the world have been 
featured on the front cover of Time Magazine. Uh, He's been featured on CNN, the Oprah Winfrey Show. So Kevin's work has really made a dent in the climbing world and certainly has gotten recognition for that as well. So Kevin is a active bodied human. He is somebody who definitely lives life to the fullest and he believes in grit instead of quit. So he's going to talk a lot about how that has impacted his journey along the way. So Kevin is a great guy. I know you're going to love listening to him and learning about his nonprofit, which is called the K2 Adventures Foundation. Uh, You're going to love listening about K2 and their work in bringing average shows like you and me to these summits that are just breathtaking and challenging uh, and all that good stuff. So without further ado, I'll let Kevin tell his story. So I'm so excited to present to you, Kevin Chirilla. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Excited to chat with you. We're going to get into some fun stuff today. First thing that I'm thinking as I look at you is there's a picture of you on the top of a summit um, with a full jacket on and goggles and boots. Um, So I'm I'm excited to talk about your hiking journey um, and and your climbing. Uh, But before we do that, I know that sports played a role in your upbringing. So just bring us to your upbringing and, and also how sports impacted the way you were brought up? Yeah, you know, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I think the whole Western Pennsylvania mentality from the time you're born and raised there is just ingrained in you. And and what I mean by that is my dad was a was a truck driver and he was a long haul trucker. He trucked, uh, you know, steel out of steel mills and you know, so we were all about blue collar and, and growing up as a kid, it was all about the Steelers and the Pirates and the Penguins. It was, you know, all of my all of my clothes and, and all that stuff growing up as a kid was Steelers. And, you know, by the time I was in sixth grade, they had won four Super Bowls and the Pirates had won the World Series. And so sports was always around me. I always had a glove in my hand, a bat, something, a football, um, you know, basketball. Those were the big sports in my life growing up. And I had some great coaches along the way that were just incredible mentors and um, just hard-nosed guys. I remember playing in sold-out you know, uh, arenas in basketball in high school and having the crowd be right behind your bench and be in your face and, you know, coach calling timeout and it was just ruckus in a gym and, you know, and just a coach who was hard-nosed as, you know, as the rest of them would just get in our face and just fire us up. Right. And that would fire us up. It never, you know, got us upset or anything like that. It just, it made us want to play harder and, you know, just really be competitive as kids growing up. And that's just the way I was. How would you define blue collar? Like when you think of blue collar, what are some words that you associate with it? You know, work boots, uh, lunchbox. uh, It's not a nine to five job. You know, it's, it's whatever it takes to get it done, right? And it's also what I felt with blue collar is it's about team. You know, my dad was my dad represented truckers and bricklayers and the police force. And you know, he was a union rep for years in Pittsburgh. So when I thought about blue collar people, I thought about like workers as teams. You know, r- whether you were doing all of those things or you were playing a sport, you were still a team, right? So. Blue collar to me was just a band of guys that would really have your back and, you know, take a bullet for you if it took that, you know. And dad was a trucker on the road a lot or how often? Yeah, my dad was barely around until I was in my early teens. And then he started working more local. Then he took on a 
uh, a union position with local 249 in Pittsburgh where he was, he had an office position and he wasn't driving truck at that moment, but he was still, you know, when you look back in the eighties and the late seventies, when you talk about unions and how strong they were and, you know, back then when people were picketing and, you know, scabs breaking picket lines and stuff like that. I mean, it was crazy. And, you know, I saw a lot of stuff growing up and I heard a lot of heated arguments and, you know, saw a lot of just guys fighting for what they, you know, felt was important, you know. And I would assume mom was was home with you guys with dad on the yeah. road. My mom was a stay-home mom. She was one of uh, nine kids. She grew up on a really large farm in Ohio. So, you know, they were all blue-collar people too, And but a lot of fun. You know, with nine siblings, there was a lot of cousins. So I grew up with a lot of cousins on the farm, and we had some unbelievable holidays together, some incredible turkey bowl football games, and, you know, you name it, we did it. From playing in the barnyards to screwing around out in the in the woods to everything you know that's that's where a lot of my character as a kid being in the outdoors and not in front of a tv and not in front of a computer and all that kind of stuff was ingrained in me and what values did mom pass down to you well if you met my mom my mom is like she she finds the silver lining in everything right no matter what the situation uh she will always make good in, in something. That's one. She has a kind heart. Um, and, and the other thing is, which she didn't give to me, is the fact that she'll never say a swear word. You know, even if she's to repeat a joke that has one in it, she'll never say it. So it's kind of funny thing. You know, we always try to get her to say one, but she won't say it, you know. And so you had all these cousins. Did you also have siblings? Yeah, I had an older brother and a younger sister. So I'm in the middle. Uh, very competitive family growing up. Uh you know, not all of it. We weren't all very academic by any means, but we were active and we were out and about and we had a great time. My brother and I raised a lot of cane together. <laughs> and how much older was your older, older brother? Uh, he's 17 months. He was two school, two, two grades in school ahead of me. So you guys were competing at everything, front yard, you know, blacktop, wherever you need to be. Everything, everything. And it wasn't always just about sports. You know, as we got older, it was partying and the girls and, you know, all that kind of stuff. He was just a good mentor to guide me through life, you know? And so basketball, it sounds like you had memories, specific memories being in high school. What would it feel like when you'd be in that gym and it'd be sold out and the intensity of your coach yelling at you and uh, just walk us through some of the emotional sides of that as a high school basketball player? Yeah, I think growing up as a basketball player, especially, you know, you're always in front of the crowd and, you know, it's a game where, you know, you learn to make mistakes, you know, it's going to happen in a basketball game, whether it's a missed shot or a turnover or whatever. But when you compete at such a high level with such intensity and, um, you know, the tradition of basketball and sports alone in Western Pennsylvania was very competitive. So to be a part of all of that. And when I was a freshman, in high school, my buddy Matt McNogna and I, we were the first freshmen to play on the varsity at that level. We were, you know, bigger school in Pennsylvania, and we went all the way to the state championship, and we got to play in Hershey Arena, and we got to be in the locker room that Wilt Chamberlain scored his 100-point game in, you know, and our captain, Jerry Shanahan, was he got to use that locker. And I remember all of us taking photos around that locker and like, wow, man, this is amazing. And you go out and we were playing in front of 7,000 people, you know, 
as a freshman in high school. That was pretty amazing, you know, and uh, and then to carry that through for four years and we won our section all four years. We never went that far back in the States again, but it was always our goal to not only win our section, but get into the Whippeals, the Western Pennsylvania championship, and then qualify for States. I mean, that was always our goal, you know, and if we fell short of that, then we felt like, you know, we didn't work hard enough or we didn't put enough into it. And, you know, we were always lifting weights and guys garages and, shooting and playing down at the park till the, you know, the lights were turned off. I mean, that's just the way we were growing up. And, you know, we had a great time too, because, you know, after the hard work, you know, we had just as much fun too. And so you leverage basketball, you end up going to play in college. Uh, walk us through that, that experience. Yeah. You know, when you're a high school student and student athlete and, you know, you're going through that recruiting process. And I knew what my, my limits were. I was five, eight, you know, I was a pretty good guard, point guard, quick, could jump. And, you know, but it's a, you know, to get recruited by John Carroll university and to go there for basketball and also compete in track and be involved with other intramurals at that size of school is, you know, that's, a, that's a dream to be able to, you know, have somebody look at you and say, wow, you're good enough to come and play for our school, you know, and, um, as I got into college, my, my career changed a little bit due to injuries and stuff like that. But the love of sports stayed there. You know, I majored in physical education and became a coach and became a teacher. I was a teacher for 20 years. And, you know, during that time, I coached almost every sport at all levels, you know, from middle school to high school to varsity. And, you know, I enjoyed that so much and, and to try to instill the same work ethic and morals that were put into my life growing up as a kid to kids that were completely different than me um, was it was a lot of fun you know when I first moved out to Arizona my first job was teaching inner city kids of K through six and these are kids are 100% free and reduced lunch mainly Hispanic and black um, but these kids were tough they were the most hard those kids, they had nothing. And I mean nothing. Most of them didn't have a dad. So I was this dad figure. I move out to Arizona. I'm 25 years old. I just came off of being a, a head JV coach in Ohio and a varsity assistant. And I had some amazing kids. Andre Ethier plays for the LA Dodgers. I had him as a fifth and sixth grade athlete, right? So I had these amazing kids that played for me. And I just told them right from the very beginning, I said, if you take your talent and you listen to me, and you have some structure in your game, you guys are going to be very, very successful. So I would take these fifth and sixth graders that were hard-nosed kids, had nothing, but they would go through a brick wall for me. I would enter them in tournaments, and we would just wipe up because they played so hard. And they just, all they wanted in, in their life was some love and some guidance. Is that what so, you, is that what you think helped you cultivate the relationship? Because I'm having the image in my head and I'm seeing somebody who doesn't look like them, um, who they might view as different. So what allowed you to cultivate the relationships to allow them to fulfill their potential or run through brick walls, like you said? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and it basically boiled down to this. Most of these kids were raised without a father. They, they didn't, they, they weren't around. Their mom had multiple boyfriends or, you know, there were multiple men in um, a kid's mom's life who, you know, they had kids from, right? So growing up, I provided a time frame. Guys, I'm going to be on this campus every day from seven o'clock 
and I'm going to close the gym down at five. I'll, I'll, I'll guarantee that for you. You know, and I ran open gyms for these guys and I got after school program money to run after school programs. So these kids that didn't have dads, they looked at me as a dad figure. Plus, if they didn't have certain love in their life or if when they walked in the doors of their house and it was chaos from the time they got home to the time they got back to school, I wanted to give them something that was stable in their life. And, you know, there's a lot that plays into that. And it's, you know, I gave these kids love. I gave them food. I gave them shelter. And then I gave them something to look forward to. These kids love basketball. They love baseball. You know, if we were able to play football back then, I, we probably would have cleaned house in that too, right? But these kids, what I saw, they would come to school every day with the same clothes, that kind of thing. You know, whether it was the long, saggy, baggy pants and a, uh, a, a, a tank top shirt and some ragged tennis shoes, so be it. They gave me all they could with that. And then it just became one of those things. It was a challenge to me. I'm going to get them uniforms. I'm going to get them shoes. I'm going to make them feel important. You know, I got sponsors in the in the local community to buy in and come and support these kids. And before you knew it, my gym was packed with people to watch these games. I mean, it was incredible. And I can I can go on and tell you how many of these kids went on and played D1, you know, throughout the Western, you know, United States, a lot of them go to ASU, a lot of them go to U of A. These are the kids that I had. And, and it was just so fun to be able to say to them, you know, I'm going to give you some structure, but you got to give me something back. You got to be good in the classroom. You know, you got to be good at school. You can't be getting arrested on the weekends, you know, that kind of thing. And, and it really, it changed a lot of these kids, you know, to this day, I still, I, I met with a kid two weeks ago, my a kid, Brandon, 32 years old. He, he, he thanked me and cried that day like you couldn't believe. And this kid had nothing. He was one of 14 kids. You know, you know? the thing that I think of, and you said a word earlier, which was consistency. And I was watching the Chicago Cubs game last night, and Chris Bryant was doing an interview with Alex Rodriguez. And uh, Chris Bryant said, I want to be consistent with my approach every day I come to the ballpark. And in my mind, you're like, okay, he wants to consistently go two for four or what, you know, but, but what he, he, he said next was, I want my teammates to know that I'm going to bring the same attitude every single day and I'm going to show up and they can trust to know that they can expect certain things from me. And right. I think we think of consistency as always being outcome oriented when it really is about approach or process and right. what you provided for those kids was a consistent approach that then allowed them to blossom or, or show sides of their toughness, like you said. And I think a lot of life is about consistently showing up with an approach. Um, it's not about consistently getting the results that you want because it's impossible. Um, and you look at a sport like baseball and the old adage you know, if you strike out seven out of 10, you get out seven out of 10 times, you're a hall of famer. Like there is no consistent baseball player from an outcome standpoint. Um, right. so to have that approach is, is really cool. What, what drove you to go into that world? So you graduate from college, you know, why go into a, an environment that's really difficult and tough? Well, you know, when I, when I, um, growing up as a kid, I had a lot of learning disabilities. They were diagnosed when I was young. And a lot of them had to do with le reading and comprehension. So I was told very early on, if I stayed active, you know, and did things physical and used my mind and used my imagery and 
my body to to work and all of that, that I'd be better off. So with that said, wait, can you, can you unpack the imagery part? Like, what do you mean by that? As far as what? Like, what would you, you said, use my mind and use my imagery. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Like, you know, as a physical education teacher, I can use my mind to create something I want done in the classroom in a physical realm. I can create a game, like every game we ever played in PE, I adapted, I changed the game whether it was the scoring part of it or whether it was, you know, how we played and maybe how many objects and, and things like that. So I'd use my mind and imagine what these kids would be like. Cause my goal as a PE teacher was, Hey, how long can I keep these kids active for in a 30 minute period of time or a 40 minute period of time? Right? Well, if you were to play a game of basketball, it's kind of boring with one ball, five guys, five on five. Well, I create a game where you use all six baskets in a gym, you know, at the same time, with three basketballs. Well, and then I also had 18 different ways to score. So if you were the worst kid, if you couldn't walk and chew gum, you could still score in this game, or you could contribute in a way that you'd feel like, you know what, you're adding value to the game. I'm not just a scrub sitting on a bench, right? So the way I created everything in my class was how active can I make it? How involved could the kids be? Did they want to come to my classroom? Did they come with energy? Were they rip roaring to go? And, you know, my kids, when I was a teacher, they always saw me as a climber. So I was always training, always doing something. You know, I climbed Mount Everest when I was a school teacher for high school kids. So what a better influence for these kids to see all of that, right? So, you know, to, to be able to instill that in these kids as a teacher, that's why I went into the physical realm of, of what I've been doing all my entire life. You know, I've been... I have two multi-million dollar companies that I run now and, and that I started 10 years ago with my business partner and never in a million years that I think that I would spend a lot of my time sitting behind a desk. Okay. I still do, but it was a whole different mindset. You know, I'm not confined to time and all that, you know, there's so much you can go into right there, but you know, I had to change my mindset as you know, I progressed through what I did in life. But why go there? Why go to that tough environment? Um, and, and serve those kids? Like what was driving you to do that? Well, part of the thing was, is when you, it, you know, the education in Arizona really has issues, right? So back in the early nineties, when I came out here, when I was applying for jobs, I was applying to the big school districts. Well, a lot of them were really poor inner city districts, right? Well, along here I come, I just, my wife got hired at one of the best private schools in the country. And here I get hired in one of the poorest schools in the inner city, Right. And it was kind of one of those things where, all right, I'll take a job like this because, number one, I need a job. I was 24, 25 years old. I, I didn't want to come out from Ohio without a job. So that's what I took. And I took over a job that was kindergarten through sixth grade. Uh, there was about 1,200 kids in that school, 100% free and reduced lunch. Um, these kids, like I just mentioned, were very, very poor kids. But to me... To be able to give back what I love, the physical realm of things, physical education, and those kids knew when they came through that door that there was an expectation that if you wanted to participate in my class and if you wanted to have fun with all the other kids, you had to abide by the rules and you had to act a certain way, right? So I created a great atmosphere. It was, it was competitive, but yet not cutthroat in any means. And any kid would know the rules, they would know the guidelines, and they would know that you know what, there's an opportunity for everyone to be a winner, for everyone to contribute, you know, and, and I always said as a teacher, 
you know, I would, I would always say, I'm going to compliment three kids every single class. I don't care what it was. And I would, I would make the class laugh. That was my job for the day, right? Because a lot of those kids, when do they ever get a compliment and whoever makes them laugh, right? So cool. I, I just read in a research that laughter reduces anxiety and that we, we, when we're laughing, we usually are not anxious. And, uh, what do you, what do you think about that? How does that resonate with you? A hundred percent. My business partner, Kristen and I, one of the things that we create in all of our trips now take a Think about taking a group. This summer, we're taking 122 people to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Every ordinary, average Joe, no one's special on this team, right? And and we're doing something where it puts somebody's life on the line, right? This is different now. This is a different type of game. This is your this is life and death. And we've always said one of the things that we're always going to have is laughter. No matter what, we're going to make light of a situation. We're going to have fun. We get in a dining tent, we're going to laugh and we're going to have a great time and we're going to tell, you know, appropriate stories and jokes and, you know, be, why? Because after a long day of hiking or going to elevation and people are wiped out and they're miserable or they're sick or they got diarrhea or whatever it may be, you know what? Laughter does help. It does. And I think it, it helps cure, you know, those, that little voice in our head to, you know, that's always talking negative, you know. You throw a laughter in there or you make somebody at ease. You know, I'm kind of like the master of when someone's miserable hiking or they're suffering or they're thinking about, you know, do they have it in them to do it? I'll totally distract them with the question to say, hey, you know, I heard you talking about your dog earlier at break. Tell me more about your dog, right? Well, now we start talking about the dog and you get a couple laughs in there and, you know, or you talk about your kids or whatever it totally changes their mindset. And another hour goes by and they don't even realize that they just did another hour. Sure. So disassociating from something that makes us anxious or nervous or scary um, can help us perform better. Um, Exactly. You mentioned climbing as a teacher and climbing Everest. When did you decide that you wanted to take on climbing? When did that become a thing for you? Well, when I was in ninth, when I was nine years old in third grade is when I was first introduced to Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, and what he did, right? And climbed Everest. And this is about the time when I was diagnosed with my learning disabilities. And I had a teacher, she realized, Hey, if I give this guy some autobiographies of sports figures, or if I give him some stories about pioneers and explorers, you know, it was a little better for me, right? So as I got older and when I moved out to Arizona, I met a gentleman by the name of Eric Weinmayer. Eric is uh, a blind athlete. He grew up in New Canaan, Connecticut, uh, was a wrestler in high school, went on to Boston College, wrestled there. Um, and when I moved out to Arizona in 93, he moved out to Arizona as well. And he was hired as a school teacher where my wife was teaching. So when I met Eric, his goal was to do the seven summits, to climb the highest peak on each of the seven continents. So when he asked me to help him start doing that, that's fascinated with me, right? Here was a guy who, you know, one of my heroes growing up was my grandfather. My grandfather lost his leg when he was seven years old. So he was run over by a train. So growing up, I had my grandfather as the only disabled person um, that I knew and was in my life, but he was always in my life, right? So then I move out here to Arizona and I meet Eric who's blind and we become best friends, right? So 
it was truly Eric that said, Hey, do you want to help me do this? And I said, sure, man, let's just figure this shit out. Right. Let's how, how are you going to follow me? How are we going to rock climb? How are we going to hike on a trail? You know, how are we going to do all these things? And we came up with systems for that. And then we just started climbing. And what I realized from the very first time I ever stepped foot on a mountain, this was after my freshman year in college, I went out to Oregon. I had a really shitty freshman year in college. So I went out to Oregon. I wanted to do something different. And my, uh, my uncle introduced me to this guy and I climbed Mount Hood. Okay. And I said to myself, I says, man, all the sports I've ever done, this is the greatest sport. Why? Because it's physical. It's the most mental, but yet one wrong step could cost you your life. And I, to me, that was what was so fascinating about being, having to be focused for such a long period of time and not screw up and also rely on somebody else. You know, if you're traveling on a rope team, you know, and someone falls, it's on your rope team. Well, it's your responsibility to stop him from pulling you off too, right? Okay. So, so I would love to just pause right there. Cause I think yeah. this is really fascinating where, um, we were talking about laughter earlier and anxiety, yeah. but there also needs to be when you're climbing a certain amount of anxiety, because if you don't have anxiety, you're, you're not respecting the mountain. Right. And right. So anxiety actually serves you as a climber. You just can't be paralyzed by that anxiety. Not let that get your foot to go the next, you know, next step and, and to go forward. So right. can you, can you just go to that place when you're at Mount Hood, you're now, you, you threw in that you also ran track in college, which, you know, did not fall in deaf ears with me, but right. you're, you're running track, you're playing basketball, but you're having this experience at Mount Hood where it requires deep focus. Walk me through that sort of experience when you realize that you have to channel something that's maybe different than what you're doing in basketball and track. Yeah, you know, I think in, in, in all sports, basketball or track, let's just talk about that for a quick second. You have that real focus on maybe shooting a free throw. You know, you're really focused on the front of that rim, you know, and you're taking all that noise around you and you're, you're tuning it out, right? That's one thing. Let's say in track, I was a jumper and a sprinter, right? From the minute you rise up in the blocks, you, you get that laser focus of when's that gun going to go off, right? What are those first few steps like? You know, on a long jump, what's that plant foot like? You know, even down to the last second, you're running down there and you got to know that, you know, without looking at your foot that you're going to plant it perfectly, right? Well, all of those are really important, but it's only for an outcome, right? An outcome that there's no danger, there's no, you know, whatever. But now take that to the climbing world. Well, the minute you start going vertical or the minute you start adding weather or other people or uh, the severity of the terrain, your anxiety goes up, your focus becomes laser focus. I mean, it has to. And, and, and like you, you, you made a good point of you can't be paralyzed by it, right? You can't be frozen at that moment of fear. But yet, I think that anxiety level or, or that level of just adrenaline takes you to a different focus and takes you to a different, maybe uh, you're drawing an ability out of your body that you didn't know existed. You know, the fight or flight mechanism, right? You, you, you're just going to fight to the end regardless, you know, or pull something out, you know, superhuman strength or superhuman endurance. You know, my summit day on Everest was 20 hours 
and I drank about four ounces of water and had one bite of food. So if you were to tell somebody in your office or my office, hey, you're going to go for 20 hours, you're not going to stop moving, and you're not allowed to drink or eat, they'd look at me like I was crazy, right? And, then, on, and on top of, is it the tallest? It's one of the tallest peaks yeah, in the world. And if you saw what I went through from 27,200 feet to 29,035 feet, you know, that's not office or anything. The amount of focus that day, I mean, I can walk you through almost every single step of that morning and that day. You know, it took me seven hours to get to the summit and 13 hours to, to clean the camps and go back down the camp to that day. And I did it without oxygen because I had a malfunction in my oxygen. So there's a lot of things that, you know, when you talk about that moment of anxiety or focus, you know, there's just certain times in your life where you need to do it for a long period of time and the consequences are so much more. So I look at everything from what I did as a kid and what I did as, a, as in high school and what I did in college and all the things you do as a parent, you know, and um, you know, just daily, uh, experiences. And when you get into the mountains, you have to forget about a lot of that stuff and you just have to put it away and you have to be focused knowing that you have all of those strengths and you have all of that history behind you. And for this moment of, you know, I reached the summit of Everest on my 58th day, you know, to tell somebody you're going to, you're going to leave your house and you're going to spend 58 days climbing a mountain where you're going to spend 10 minutes on the top and you're going to watch people die around you and your chances of dying are high and your success rate is only 10%. You know, it'd be like, why are you doing it? Right. But to me, it was more about, I want to see if, if everything that I've done in my life to prepare for this moment and all the years of the climbing that I did and all the hard work and all the wind sprints and everything that I put in leading up to this moment, if I had it in me, you know, and I think what it does, it just, it justifies that, you know, after you do something like that and you accomplish something like that, people look at you differently. At least that's what people say to me. I don't know if they do or not. I, I don't, doesn't go to my head or whatever. I don't. Do you look at I yourself? Think, do you look at yourself differently? Never. What I look at myself differently as far as I want to be able to instill what it took for me to do that into my kids. That's it. You know, I'm still going to carry that work ethic through the rest of my life. You know, I'm not going to be lazy. I'm not going to, you know, think just because I accomplished something so big that everything else falls into my lap in my life. I mean, I'd be stupid to think that, right? But I can take that same work ethic into everything that I do in my life now. And I can even, you know, throw it at my kids too and, 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 let them see that, Hey, you want to accomplish something that big in life. You got to work hard at it. You know, I can't hand it to them. My dad never handed it to me. Right. When did you, when did you first decide that you were going to summit Everest? Well, I was a part of Eric's team in 2001. I was a base camp manager for their team and, um, going over there and, and, uh, not being a climber at that time, I just said to myself, I'm going to learn every single thing I can about this whole Everest thing and the region and the climbing and the people and the, the process and all of that. Right. So I got my feet wet with Eric and his team and being over there for, we were there for 76 days and to watch an expedition like that and learn so much, it was kind of like my fuel for the fire because there were guys that were on that team that were friends of mine for years I had climbed with. 
It wasn't my role to be a climber, but to see those guys succeed and help them succeed was like, you know what? If they can do it, I can do it. And I wanted to go back. It was always a dream of mine. So 30 years after, you know, I first started thinking about it, I got to go do it. And, you know, I think when you, when you keep a, a goal in reach or in your thoughts and, uh, for so long in, in, and it's not one of those wishy washy type things, it's a serious thing. And, um, when you work really hard for that, when you finally get that opportunity, man, I'm going to take every, uh, you know, every moment that I can to be successful. And I saw people on Everest that quit after two weeks or three weeks or threw in the towel because they didn't know what to expect or whatever the reasons were. And it just, it kind of like floored me. It's like, didn't you know that beforehand or didn't you prepare well enough or didn't you have the grind in you to want to do that? You know, when you say 30 years, so nine year old you, is that, is that when you read about, uh, I forget his name, the guy yeah. who summited Everest. Um, There's Sir Edmund Hillary right there in Tenzing Norgay. <laughs> and Sir Edmund Hillary signed that poster for me. So, okay. you know, he was my idol growing up. You know, everyone had sports figures and I had my sports figures too. But in the back of my head, man, I also knew about Sir Edmund Hillary. And I knew about these amazing pioneers and these guys that were, you know, love to go out there and, and do things very differently when there's no audience, there's no trophies, there's no applause. And, you know, you go out and you do it for self-gratification. And nothing else, right? So cool. So, all right. So you always had the image in your head and and the vision of that's a dream and that's something I want to accomplish. When did you start training uh, for your climb? Walk us through that process. Yeah, you know, I I really buckled down for for almost eleven months. I had a buddy call me. <clears throat> my buddy from Colorado called me and he says, "Hey, he goes, he goes, I think Everest is my year next year. Do you want to join me?" So from that moment on, I had to get things straight with my my work. You know, I was a teacher at the time. I had to make sure that was working right. Uh, obviously, my family was the first line of communication, and you know, would you you know acceptance of this? And 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 I had to talk to my wife and kids. And and once I put all those things into place, I had about eight good months to train. And, and how I train was, I said to myself, I'm going to commit every day at 415. I'm going to wake up because I was told a long time ago, and this was one of the greatest things. Um, a coach at Duquesne University, and when I was an all star in high school, he was the coach, he was the speaker at one of our banquets, right? And, and coach Jim Saddleman said, he goes, the one thing that we all have in common, he goes, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care what your race, ethnicity, where you're from, what your title is. He said, the only thing we all have in common is time. He says, that's it. We all got 24 hours in a day. However you want to deal with that time, that's up to you. You want to make excuses that you don't have enough time? Well, Johnny over there is getting up at 4.15, right? So I always took that mentality of when I was training, every day I was up at 4.15. I was going to do my first workout at 4.15. My second workout came at a break when I was a teacher. So if I had a long break in the day, I used my school and around me. I would either go on a run. I would swim a couple thousand meters. Um, I would lift weights in the weight room, whatever it was, it was still all on my own. Right. And then if some days I would did three a days, what I would do is after work, I would go, we have some great local mountains here in, 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 uh, Phoenix, one Camelback mountain, Squaw Peak, Camelback mountain was really close to where I worked. So I would go over there after, after work and just up and down. So that would be one day where I'd do three workouts. Maybe on the weekends I would just do one, but I would put on a 50 pound, backpack, I would put a bag of mortar. I carried a bag of mortar in a backpack 
And I carried that everywhere with me. Any hike, it was on my back. And I said, if I can carry this around, I can, I can carry anything on Everest. And sometimes I knew my loads were going to be bigger than 50 pounds. And I knew that sometimes I'd go lighter. And as long as I could go fast and as hard as I could with less than 50 pounds, I'm going to train harder and suffer here more than I was over there. That was my mentality. You know, Kevin, I've got this theory that um, our mindset in, in practice should be actually the opposite of our mindset when we're performing. Um, and so we should be humble in practice, but confident or even maybe arrogant when we're performing. Um, or we should be perfectionist and try to get things exactly right in practice so that we can be adaptable when we're performing. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a theory, and I'm just curious how that lands with you um, and, and how you think about that. Well, this is what I'm going to say about that. It's kind of like when I hear that somebody's working out and they're reading a magazine or they're uh, talking with somebody or they're answering their phone, that to me is not working out, right? You know, to me, when when I go to practice or when I go to work out and my time is limited even more now with all the hats that I have, I want to be laser focused during practice and I want to put it in my best. You know, I did an amazing hike just this past Saturday alone by myself with my headphones on. You know, I was up when the sun was coming up, you know, and I worked hard for four and a half hours, right? And why? Because, you know, I have three climbs of Kilimanjaro coming up. I have a climb of uh, the Grand Canyon, 25 and a half miles in two weeks. So my opinion is that when you go at something in practice, you go at it as hard as you can, because I've got to be, I, I've got to know that my body is, is going to per, perform when I'm on that mountain, because sometimes when I'm on the mountain, I'm moving at a slower rate, but I have to be more focused because the danger level is higher, right? So if that if what I think is going to be a five-hour day turns into an eight-hour day, I'm prepared for that, right? You, you've given us some insight to how you do that. Anything else that you do in practice to really try to, it sounds like you try to make practice so difficult that when you're in it performing, you know you can trust your body uh, is ready for that. Um, right. anything else that you do from a mental standpoint to prepare for the danger that's going to take place when you're, when you're on the mountain? Yeah. You know, one of the things I do is I love to talk about visualization, you know, and I did this as a coach, I would tell my players, I said, do you guys ever think about hitting that buzzer shot? Do you ever lay in bed at night, making that free throw with, with no time on the clock or two seconds on the clock to win a game? Well, I take that same mindset in the climbing. When someone said to me, what was it like when you stood on top of Everest? Well, I tell them that I stood up on top of Everest a thousand times. I said, you know how many times I did summit day in my head? I said, you know how many times I broke down summit day just to know that, you know, where I needed to be and how I was going to move and stuff like that. So I think the power of visualization when you're talking about preparing for something so big is really, really important. You know, relive it in your mind over and over again. And then take us to the performance mindset, specifically on Everest. And you were giving us some insight in that in, in the summit. But what's it like when you're at base camp? And uh, you know, if I'm, I've heard people talk about Everest. I've been really interested in it. Not that I'm ever going to do it. I don't have any desire to. Um, right. But I'm fascinated by it because I think it's you know there are certain things in this world that people do from a performance mindset standpoint that are to me, incredible. Um, and I don't think I'm alone in that sort of uh, awe uh, of that. But um, 
to get to base camp, you have to climb a ton, right? And then walk us through like, what is the mindset like once you're at base camp and, and how, just take us there because for most of us, we won't ever be there. Yeah, you know, I will. I, that's a great question. When it, the mindset is this, you know, you get to base camp at 17,000 feet. And, and when I climbed it as a climber, I did it from the north side in Tibet. So the approach into base camp is very different from the south side, which I've been to the south side base camp now six times. When you are at base camp and you know, okay, now I'm at 17,000 feet and I've got to go another, you know, 12,000 feet higher. And how does that look? And how many camps are there? And how much gear do I have? And how much food do I have? And how do I move that from camp to camp? Well, every time you do something and you go a little higher and you move another load, the biggest mental thing about Everest when I was there is if you can imagine, we were, we were, we did all of this work starting from 17,000 feet up to 21,000 feet and then all the way up to 25,000 feet when we were shooting for the summit. Okay. So we did carries. We, you know, we would move from 17,000 feet to 21,000. Then we did 21,000 to 23,000. And, you know, you get to 23,000 feet, you come back down to 21,000 feet, rest a couple days, you go back up to 23, carry a load to 25, come all the way back down again. So your body is up and back, up and, you know, back and forth and up and down and you're acclimatizing, right? Well, when we started for our summit push, we were shooting for May 24th to be our summit date. Well, when we got to Camp 2 on May 22nd, the weather just turned for the worse on us. So we decided that we were going to turn around and go all the way back down to base camp to 17,000 feet only if we got another shot at the summit. Well, our team agreed that yes, they would give us another shot at the summit. So to go all the way back down, you know, you work so hard and you you mentally prepare to, you know, hey, two days from now I'm going to be pushing for the summit of Everest, and then to, ha- to be turned around and to go all the way back down and retreat eight thousand feet and go to base camp and hang out for a week to find that next weather window. You have to stay focused and you have to stay positive and you have to say, you know what, this is only for the better. My body is, is, you know, even though I'm, I'm depleting, you know, my size, I lost 50 pounds when I climbed Everest. I knew that as long as I could go back down, stay healthy, get fat and eat a little bit more and give it one more summit push, I just knew that those five days were going to be to the grind very focused and I'm going to give it my all. And that's exactly what we did. And we turned around and we went up June uh, on June 1st was when we left base camp and we worked all the way up to our summit, which was on June the 5th. Hmm. So, so you actually climbed the whole thing in five days, but it took 58 days in total. Exactly. From the, from the minute I left my house to the minute I stood on the summit, I was gone for 58 days. I was on the mountain you know, for over 40 of those days. And, so, and walk us through declimatization and, and how that works. Cause I think most people are not familiar with that. Yeah. How your body has to acclimatize. I think all of us have that story about, you can say, Hey, I went skiing and, you know, went to altitude and I was winded or I went on a hike for the first time and how you felt. Right. Well, it's no different, no matter how well you're conditioned as an athlete, as a climber, our bodies still have to acclimatize to the altitudes that we deal with. And, and how that works is the longer you're at an altitude, uh, the more red blood cells that your body has to produce to have more oxygen 
carry capacity, if that makes sense. Well, every time I go up in elevation and back down in elevation, my body is now producing more red blood cells. I'm acclimatizing to that altitude. So if I go, let's just say from 17,000 feet to 20,000 feet, and I hang out at 20,000 feet for a day or two, and I go back down to 17,000 feet and hang out there for a while, I'm going to feel a lot better the next time I go back to 20,000 feet. My body's been there, done that. It's produced more red blood cells. So now when I get back to 20,000 feet, I can hang out and be fine, right? Well, now let's just say I want to go to 20,000 feet all the way up to 23,000 feet, which was our camp one. Well, the first time I did that took us almost six hours to go that 2,000 vertical feet. Well, the third time that I did that trip, it took us about three hours and 10 minutes. Wow. So you can see how we acclimatize, right? You feel much better. You feel stronger. And as you move up in altitude, that's what happens. You just feel stronger because you have more red blood cells. You have more oxygen carrying capacity. You just, you feel different. And as long as you can stay healthy, you know, digestively, respiratory and all that stuff, you know, you got a great chance of making it. So literally, if you wanted to, you can't just hike up the different summits because your body won't, your body won't let you. Right. You know, we can do max, you know, 4,000 feet in a day, 3,000 feet in the mountains in one day is a lot. You know, that's a lot. So when you hear people that do more than that, especially at altitude, it's pretty awesome. You know, there's some really studly people out there, some machines, man. You know, you watch these great athletes on TV and watching the playoffs right now. And, you know, these these guys are athletes, but you take them out of that realm and you, you know, you, you do something different, man. It's a whole different world, you know. And, and so what's it like when you are, and you, you gave us some insight, but I think you said you were at camp, what is it, camp four or whatever you were about to summit. And then you're like, we got to go back down. What does that do for you mentally when you're like, we have to turn back around because it's just not happening weather-wise. Yeah, you know, it's it's really def, def, deflating at the time. It really is. It's a big letdown. But the the the, the nice part about it was is when we were told we were given enough, we would be given another shot. You know, as long as I hear, I get one more chance. That's all I need to hear, right? If they said, "Hey, I'm not giving you a chance," then you know what? Then you push through something. Maybe you, the the risk increases a little bit, or you push yourself a little bit harder. You know, that's but that's typically where people get in trouble, right? You know, or they die. You know, when you when you don't listen to Mother Nature, or you don't listen to your body, what it's telling you, you know, that's when you get in trouble. You know, there's that fine line of, of you know, reading your body and knowing when to turn around. You know, I call it an educated risk and not just I'm not a crazy risk taker or a daredevil. Or that's not who I am. And, you know, luckily, most of the guys I've ever climbed with, that's their mentality, too. We're all still around. We're still alive, you know. We didn't push those limits to to where, you know, you take the the death margin and increase it so high that, you know, you're like you said, you know, the anxiety level is so high you kind of get paralyzed, right? I, I don't want to do that, you know. It's, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating because to your point earlier, a basketball player, track athlete, whoever, um, they really in some ways have to – get their minds into a place that is when they're at their best, that is so they don't care about how anyone's judging them or how anyone sees them or how far they're pushing it. Um, 
But when you're climbing a mountain and it is a matter of life and death, you can't just have that basketball mind or that track mind of arrogance because if you don't respect the mountain, um, you're going to be in trouble. But like I watch a lot of top performers and I don't want to say they don't respect their opponents. It's not that. But I look at a guy like Steph Curry, for example. Like the notion that Steph Curry thinks that he's in range when he gets across half court is crazy. Like, right. Like, like before he started doing that, nobody did that. And um, so he had to innovate and do things without caring about failure in that moment. But when you're climbing a mountain, you don't have that luxury. Um, so that notion of like, I look at the guy who climbs the tightrope and goes over the, uh, uh, Walinda, or I forget ex exactly his name, climbs the Grand Canyon without a harness right. and that tightrope. Yeah. And to me, it's similar. It's like on one side of that tightrope is he can't be so afraid of failure that he's not going to do the walk. And on the other side, if he's just fearless and just going to stroll right across, he's also not going to do well. And right. so where that line is, is so different then I think our mindset for so much other elements of life. Um, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree totally. But I also believe that if you're able to take your mind to that level, that every other thing that's brought our way or every other um, challenge that comes our way is a lot easier to overcome, you know? Um, and like I said, I think I, I mentioned that a little bit earlier with my kids. Um, you know, I'll throw that out there every once in a while, you know, Hey, take the trash out. And, you know, they give me grief. I'll say, you know, <laughs> come on, you could do it. You know, we can all do it, whatever it is, you know, and it's just, I just think that when you're able to take your, your mindset to that level of, you know, you have almost like this sixth sense. And I think you hear athletes talk about that, you know, why can Steph Curry see behind his head or see things happening before they happen? You know, every, every, you know, golfers talk about that a lot too. There's a lot of athletes that, you know, the, the visualization again of, of outcomes and stuff like that. And I think the more you repeat those outcomes in your mind as positive outcomes, they will come to fruition. And I think that again, when you're able to take your, your, your limits to that life and death moment or a moment like that, or, um, uh, you know, it just makes everything else in life, I think, a little bit easier to put in focus. Sure. And you mentioned something earlier where you said you get to the top and then there's 10 minutes to take it in. Yeah. What's, the, what's that like? What's that like when you reach? You know, level? it was super emotional. And I just actually just a couple of weeks ago, I watched a lot of footage that I, I took about maybe three or four minutes of video footage up there before my camera froze. And I remember walking up to the summit and I was just alone with my Sherpa. There was no one else around. We were late. A June summit is very late on Everest. No one's left on the South side. And there was only one other team on the mountain on the North. And to be on the summit with one other person in the world at that moment, man, you know, you think about where you came from. I thought about my third grade teacher. I thought about my parents, my, my wife, my kids, you know, Hey, I can't wait to get home. You know, the summit's only halfway. People forget about that. So, you know, it's like, man, I'm up here. The winds were howling. You know, we knew that the when I started that morning, it was minus 51 degrees, right? And I pull out of my tent about 1230, just after midnight. And it was absolutely gorgeous. Not a cloud in the sky, no wind. It was calm. It was, you know, even though it was minus 51, it just felt great, right? You know, I just, my whole body just felt amazing. And that first hour I knew was going to be a big test. Well, 
I felt incredible and just kept pushing hard to the summit, got up there seven hours later and the winds were howling. The, the jet stream was right above my head, maybe a, maybe a quarter mile above my head. You could just hear it screaming. And we knew that, you know, by 6 a.m. that the, the, the winds were going to pick up. This is now like 7.30, 7.45. Then we knew by noon that they were going to be really high. So it was just a matter of getting up and getting down, right? And, you know, to be up there just for those 10 minutes um, and to think about all those people and all that, you know, everyone who helped me get there, right? You know, that's the whole mental process, the whole physical process and sponsors and all, whatever it was, you know, I thought about all those people, you know, and, and, and I just thought that, you know what, this, it's, it was a great moment for me because it, it kind of like made me feel like I validated, uh, you know, who I was as a, as a businessman and as a climber. And, um, you know, that validation to me meant a lot you know, people look at you differently, like, Hey, I can, I can go with this guy. Just, you know, this guy has put in the work. Right. And you know, I think the, the, having the mindset of a climber, you know, I talk about, you know, my grandfather used to talk about the mindsets of climbers, campers, and quitters. Right. And you always said, don't be a quitter, man. You know, just always go out there and be a climber, be the guy, um, you know, taking the sharp end of the rope, be the guy who's leading, you know, if you pick up your bag and you start forging ahead, he goes, people will follow. He says, you don't need to yell at him. You don't need to bark at him. You just, you know, you lead the lead by example. And I think that's a lot of what I've done in my entire life, you know, is I just lead by example. So. What's it like when you take that first step to go down? <laughs> well, I knew where the, I knew where the scariest part was going to be going down. Uh, I had three areas in my head that I knew that one slip, I was dead. I mean, you know, the one area, there's bodies that were just stacked up, you know, from years and years, there was 30, 40 bodies just piled up, uh, you know, and that was one area that was called the second step. And it was, it, it was a, a, about a 15 foot ladder section that you climb at 28,500 feet. And the reason why a lot of people die in that area is because it takes one person quite a long time to go down that ladder and, uh, or up the ladder. So if you're waiting in a queue of people, you know, it could be hours by the time you get through. Well, you run out of oxygen, you freeze to death, you know, wind blows you off, whatever it may be. So when when I got to that area, it was just right after sunrise and I could start seeing, you know, these bodies. I'm sitting there thinking like, man, you know, this is that moment where, hey, don't screw up. Don't become one of these guys, you know, stay laser focused. Uh, you know, all of that stuff is going through your head. You know, there's no guarantees in this business, right? You know, that's one of those things. I know I'm sitting there thinking like, you know, one of these guys is Irvin in Mallory, you know, from the early thirties. Right. And, you know, I'm thinking about all these other great climbers that have died. And, you know, here I am just a school teacher climbing Everest. Right. And, you know, but my mindset was I'm not going to screw up and, you know, stay focused. And when I got past that area and then I got past one more area called the exit cracks, you know, I knew that from that moment on, you know, I was, I felt really good about being safe and, and getting down safe. And I knew I had a couple more obstacles to deal with, but, um, you know, when you're picking up camps and your pack is getting heavier and heavier and, you know, you're still coming down from 27,200 feet, which was camp three, and I'm picking up tents and stoves and sleeping bags and oxygen bottles and all this stuff. And now I get down to camp two, which was 20 hours later at 25,300 feet and the sun's going down and I've been without oxygen for about 10 hours and 
I get into camp, it's about minus 20 degrees and my pack weighs about 70 pounds. And, you know, I was just exhausted, right? And got a great night's sleep. And then the next morning we woke up to beautiful weather and I'm like, oh my God, all I have to do is just go from here uh, down to advanced base camp. And once I unclipped from the lines, you know, I, there was just a sense of relief. I mean, I just, I kind of like cried, you know, it was one of those things where like, I did it, you know, I'm safe, I'm fine. And, you know, amazing. So yeah. walk me through what happens from that point until now. And uh, I also want to learn a little more about your business and, and certainly share uh, the two businesses that you mentioned earlier that are, are thriving. Yeah. You know, what happened was, unfortunately, my buddy who asked me to go uh, to climb Everest, he had to turn around on summit day. And I didn't get to see him when he turned around. And I didn't get to see him when I was coming down because he came all the way down to advanced base camp. So to run into Gavin was really difficult. You know, here's a guy who just is stronger, stronger than me. It's, it, you know, it was one of his lifelong dreams as well. And he turned around four hours from the summit, you know, and so to be with him first was really important. And then, you know, I remember after we got down to base camp at 17,000 feet, and we packed the trucks and we drove away for the first time. I remember that was the first time my ass got to sit on a cushioned seat, you know, in the back of that truck. It felt so good. You know, this was day 62, right? I pulled away from base camp after 62 days after uh, leaving my house. And I just remembered the drive back to Kathmandu. And, uh, the drive back to Kathmandu was, man, it was, it was somber. It was, uh, it was exhausting. I lost, I lost 50 pounds, you know, like I mentioned you. So I was very emaciated. Uh, all I wanted to do was sleep and eat. Um, I wanted to connect with my family and, you know, it was difficult back then, you know, everything was done by satellite phone and I couldn't, I couldn't even connect with my parent, my family until, you know, I got back to Kathmandu a couple days later. So, um, but that whole drive back, I just, I'll never forget it. And, you know, we had, there was a funny incident that happened, you know, here we are, we're about 20 miles outside of Kathmandu and we're driving along and all of a sudden the Maoists had downed this big tree in the road. Okay. They were doing a protest. So all the, all the, the trucks and all the buses and all the vehicles go in the one direction. We're at a standstill, right? So what do we do? We knew that everything coming the other direction was at a standstill too, because they had downed another tree about 300 yards down the road. So there was this like area in the middle where no one could get through. Right. So we just, we grabbed all of our stuff, not all of our or mountain gear, but all of our just personal stuff that we were traveling with. I'm still in the same clothes I've been in for like the last 14 days. So we start walking down the road, get to where the buses were that were backed up the other direction. We said, the bus driver said, Hey, you can't get through. So will you turn around and go back to Kathmandu? So the guy just said, sure, why not? So their people got off and walked down to where our bus was and they got on that bus and we got on their bus and turned around and went into Kathmandu. So people always ask me, they, this is a funny story. They always ask me, say, you know, how was that first shower after I, I got my first shower at, at, at day 64? And I said to them, um, I said, they said, how long was your first shower? And I told them it was a six pack long. So, you know, during that training process, I had stopped drinking and uh, just really was pure to my body, right? Well, when I got down, it was crazy. So the three days I spent in Kathmandu, there was a lot of beers and a lot of pizzas eaten. So awesome. And yeah. 
And then you come back home and when did, when did the foundation start? When walk us through that. And, and also when did you decide to stop being a teacher and, and start, uh, coaching? Yeah. You know, in, during the time I was teaching, I was always a coach. Like even when I went to Everest, I was a varsity basketball coach. And, um, you know, so I, I was really coaching from 2003 to, you know, 2008 as a varsity coach. And I got back in 2007, I spent, you know, one more season coaching. Um, and then what happened was in 2009, um, when I actually, when I got back from Everest, it was a funny story. I ran into a friend of mine, um, at just a, a um, it was a 4th of July party and he was the, uh, executive director for a foundation here in Phoenix called the foundation for blind children. And they deal with people from infancy all the way through, I think their oldest client is 108 years old now. And, and they deal with anybody that has a, as an issue of blindness. Right. Um, and what happened was, as I said to him, I said, why don't we put together a team to climb Kilimanjaro and we'll raise money for the foundation. Okay. And at this time I just had my guiding company. I didn't have my foundation or anything. And, and, but all of my teams as you know, in the summer is when I was running my teams to Peru and to, to Tanzania. And, um, you know, as a teacher, that's what I did as a supplemental job. You know, it was fun, right? I'd get people to go with me to, to Peru and do Machu Picchu, or I'd get people to go to Tanzania and climb Kili. And um, when I was putting this team together, um, there was eight blind people and each blind person had two sighted guides. And these two sighted guides um, were responsible as a group of three to raise X amount of dollars and also train and work together and and all of that. Well, what happened was um, I ran into a friend of mine who was on the team and was guiding a blind gentleman said, he goes, Hey, my wife and I went to a fundraiser and, and you have to meet this woman who was the MC of the event. She goes, maybe she can help us raise money for my group of three. I said, fine. I said, do you know her name, number of that? I'll give her a call. So he did, gave me her number. I invited her to come out and do a team hike with us. And she wasn't much of a hiker at all. You know, she was in the nonprofit world here in, in Scottsdale. And, you know, she'll tell you she was like a Scottsdale Barbie. You know, she was caught up into the, you know, the the running her own foundation at the time and raising a lot of money. And, you know, she was doing great things, right? And here I was as a climber putting together climbing teams. And I was introduced to her to help us raise money. Well, during that process, I ended up eliminating a woman who was on our team who was a guide. And I said to Kristen, I said, hey, would you want to be a guide for a woman? Her name was Cindy. Cindy was a nurse and she had three teenagers at the house. And over a two-week period of time, she went totally blind. And this was years ago, right? But Cindy just was a great person. And I said to Kristen, I said, hey, how would you like to be a guide for Cindy? I, I said, you can help us raise money. Um, and then I'll, I'll train you to be a part of this. She'd never climbed. She'd never slept in a tent, never peed outside before kind of thing. Right. So Kristen fell in love with what I was doing because she was working in nonprofit world, helping people with disabilities. So kind of like all meshed. Right. So when we went over and our team was very successful, we broke four world records. Kristen loved what I was doing. Um, we went to an orphanage before we climbed that had, um, blind kids at it. So our blind climbers got to meet the the blind students, and we created this great relationship. So when we got back, I said to Kristen, I said, will you help me start a foundation? I've always wanted to, to run a foundation, start a foundation, um, raise a little bit more money so my teams can give back more to these communities where I go to. And she said, you know what, I'll help you start it. I don't want to be any, I don't want to be involved with it, but I'll help you start it. You know, that was her background. That's what she did. 
So after we met one day at Peter Piper Pizza, where our kids were running around and having fun, Kristen drew out this beautiful game plan on a napkin about how to run a foundation. And she just looked at me and she said, why don't we do this together? And I said, hey, I'd love to, I'd love to have help. I said, if there's a way that we can have a, a travel company and a, and a foundation and we can call it like volunteerism or whatever we want to come up with it, I said, let's do that. You know, and her entire background was nonprofit world and mine was the climbing world and adventures and putting together expeditions. So we closed down my guide company. She closed down her foundation. And in November of 2009, uh, we started both companies, the foundation first. And then in February of 2010, we started the travel company. So, so explain to people a little bit more about the foundation and also the travel company. Yeah, so the travel company is called K2 Adventure Travel, and what we do is we take people to, we have seven different destinations right now, and it could be any type of person that wants to go on an adventure. It's a for-profit company. Uh, we take people to Machu Picchu in Peru. We go to Tanzania. We go to the Mexican volcanoes, Australia. Um, uh, you know, So we go on these great destinations. We do the Grand Canyon here in Arizona, and People just go, but one of the things they have to do when they go is they have to do volunteer work. It's just part of the it's part of the itinerary. You know, you want to go, you're going to be doing community service, and people love that concept. You know, I found out a long time ago. You know, people that have the means to travel and travel in quality, and that they love to give. And so, part of the foundation was. Is, no matter where you go, you want to go to Nepal and go to Mount Everest Base Camp, you're going to work for our orphanage there when you go. And we've built four schools in the Kumbu area for these kids that are in the remote area. And some of the earthquakes demolished their schools a couple of years ago. So we rebuilt them, right? So if you're going to go over to Nepal, you're going to do community service there. You're going to go to Tanzania where we, we have an orphanage over there. And we just bought land and a, a new piece of property to start our own orphanage. We own it now with my Tanzanian guide and we're really excited about that. That's our new phase that we're moving into. We, The first school that we started supporting, an orphanage, um, they're now totally sustainable. We plumbed water to the school. We put a medical and dental facility in. We have medical and dental teams that go over. We put uh, a farm uh, with animals. They have chickens and cows, and they have fields where they grow crops. And, and this school had nothing before. And they also have a fish pond now where they're growing fish and you know, so this school has now turned completely sustainable and we're opening up another orphanage. So um, that's our travel company. And our foundation is it's really simple foundation as far as what we do. And that is we help people with disability across the board. And right now we give close to 90 cents back on the dollar. Most of our money stays here in Arizona to help local kids with disabilities. We have programs that you know, kids with disabilities can go and do with other kids with disabilities, and they never get an opportunity to do that, right? You know, for example, we have a baseball field that's that's um, designed for people with disabilities, so these kids get to come out and play a baseball game where it's you know ten on ten, twelve on twelve, and we're playing this great game. But kids are in wheelchairs, and kids are in walkers, and you know they get to feel like they're a part of a game. They get a uniform. We announce their name over the loudspeaker, and they enjoy that. And we have another program where uh, kids can go and, and bake. They can bake cookies and they make a pizza and they go with their families. But, you know, there's no judging there and they get to be creative. And, you know, we provide opportunities for kids with disabilities where we rent out movie theaters on a Saturday morning where these kids with, you know, 
machines and uh, you know beds or whatever they have that's whatever they live in or whatever their means is they now could go to the, the movie theater and not be judged because they have a machine that's beeping or making noises or lights on it right you know so we we pack movie theaters with seven eight hundred people you know on a Saturday morning to go watch a movie you know and it's really fun so those are those are just examples that we do with our foundation and right now we've in the, the, the nine years that we've been together, we've raised over $4 million to give back to the communities. And, you know, we've had the first lady of Tanzania come to Scottsdale, Arizona to figure out, hey, who are these people helping my country so much? That kind of thing. So to me, that's pretty cool, you know? Super cool. Well, congrats on all of the success that you've had with both ventures and uh, certainly awesome work and a lot to be proud about. I know when we chatted before, it just sounds like something that I would love to do with my kids and yeah. uh, they are too young right now, but um, hopefully you guys are still going strong in in eight, eight years or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's great that you mention that because we do get a lot of families that come and, you know, my kids have grown up very privileged and, you know, they, they understand hard work, but you know what, they've had it pretty good. And when they get to go over there and be involved in these third world countries and give back the way they do, man, you talk about changing their life and they thank me for that. And, you know, we take, we, we have high schools that go with us. That's their, that's their, either their, their, um, uh, summer break or, or their mid, what am I looking for? Uh, like spring break. Yeah, spring break. So they go on trips us during spring break and in the summer. You know, so we have whole entire high schools. That's that's what they that's what their trip is based around. They get to go do an amazing adventure, but yet they give back so much and they love doing that. And these kids, they they come back humbled. They really do. Super know? super cool. Um, give us the websites of of both so that people can find it and anywhere else where people can find out more about you uh, or the work that you're doing. Yeah, you know, our travel website is uh, uh and our foundation is k2adventures.org. So k2adventuretravel.com and k2adventures.org. And, you know, we have some great projects going on right now with our foundation. And, you know, people can get involved with us as volunteers, donators, uh, travelers, whatever they want to do. We, we love having people come with us. They, what happens is people go on one trip with us and they come back and go on another one. You know, we have about 70% repeat clients. So they love what we do. We create an atmosphere that's very, very safe. It's a lot of fun. We spoon feed everything to people that may have never done something like this before, but want to take on something new in their life. And, you know, we, we take pride in that. You know, one of the things that we do is this summer, we have a team of 30 people from 10 countries and, it's called Mountain Leadership Experience, and all of these people are presidents, CEOs, or owners of companies from around the world, and they've been very successful in what they do, and then they go on the mountain, and they want something new. They want a new challenge that's mental, physical, out of their comfort zone, whatever it is, and it changes their life. They they totally have a different outlook on you know maybe what they want to accomplish in life or what they want their legacy to be left behind as, you know. It's not always about a position in dollars. It's about, you know, what do you get back? So, well, it all is, is so awesome. And certainly I encourage people to go to the websites, 
Um, and I already like have somebody in my mind when you said that, I'm like, oh man, this person would love, uh, to go on a trip like that. So, uh, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Thank you for sharing your journey and, and also your mindset. Um, and I, I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know you. Uh, and certainly next time you're in Washington, DC, uh, hopefully we, uh, can get together or maybe we'll go for a walk or a hike or, or something outdoors. Um, and thanks for all that you do. People can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then Instagram. We're at intentional, uh, underscore performers. And then our website's intentionalperformers.com. Um, and anything else that you wanted to share, Kevin? No, Brian, I want to thank you very much for giving this opportunity. We love to share our story and, um, Again, thanks for having me on, and and I'd love to. I'll take you up on the next time in DC. I've only been there twice, but uh, hopefully I'll be back. All right, it sounds good, and and thanks to Joey also for connecting the two of us. Uh, That's right, man. Joey's Joey's a good friend, so we'll give Joey a shout out. And uh, Kevin, look forward to connecting with you in person sometime. Thanks, Brian. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Yeah, you know, one of the things I do is I love to talk about visualization. You know, and I did this as a coach. I would tell my players, I said, do you guys ever think about hitting that buzzer shot? Do you ever lay in bed at night making that free throw with, with no time on the clock or two seconds on the clock to win a game? Well, I take that same mindset into climbing. When someone said to me, what was it like when you stood on top of Everest? Well, I tell them that I stood up on top of Everest a thousand times. I said, you know how many times I did summit day in my head? So do you know how many times I broke down Summit Day just to know that, you know, where I needed to be and how I was going to move and stuff like that? So I think the power of visualization when you're talking about preparing for something so big is really, really important. You know, reliving in your mind over and over again.